You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm J.R. Southall of the Blue Box Podcast. Hello, I'm Ben Verth of On The Time Lash. And hello, I'm Matt Nieder from I'll Explain Later. And this is not exactly the lineup we had planned for tonight, and it's not exactly the topic we had planned for tonight either, but such is the way of the world, everything's gone wrong, and so, although Ben and I were supposed to be here this evening... Matt, you're standing in actually for two other people now. Oh, right. Okay. Does this mean I have to hold two contrasting opinions? Um, yeah, actually, if you possibly okay. can, that would probably be very useful. Okay. Excellent. I'll do my best. Well, let, well, Ben from On The yes. Time Lash. Matt introduced himself last week, and obviously so did Mark from On The Time Lash. But I, I, I'm not going to get into the subject without asking you a little bit about the podcast first. I mean, Mark's kind of told us how it came about, but I mean, when you had the idea to come up with the podcast, you know, what were your feelings about it? Had you listened to podcasts? Was doing a podcast something that you wanted to do? Uh, Yeah, so I don't know. I just think I was um, taken up with the the fervour of the 50th anniversary um, of Doctor Who. Uh, And I think both Mark and I wanted to be a little less passive in our fandom or or create some sort of infrastructure that would allow us to um, delve a little deeper into this thing because, you know, we both love it tremendously. Um, so, so, you know, like the, the idea of just creating this thing, it was, uh, I mean, you know, also as well, I like spending time with Mark and I like drinking and I <laughs> yeah. like Doctor Who. So these were the three elements that all kind of came together. And, uh, you know, in as much as, you know, we talk about success within the niche market of Doctor Who podcasts, um, I believe it to be fairly successful and, uh, which has been a great bonus, um, because really it boils down to just hanging out with Mark and talking about something we love and having this wonderful, you know, social thing that we do. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just purely pleasurable in, in every sense, just to hang out with a friend, talk about Doctor Who and, uh, you know, okay, the hangover the next again day are <laughs> abysmal sometimes because well, know, sometimes we go far too hard on it you know i was going to ask are you actually drinking tonight uh i'm not actually i'm not i've uh i've uh so I, i'm in the, the, the you can only drink of... on your own podcast is that what you're saying <laughs> well yes i uh i i didn't want to uh deliver any disrespect to being invited uh onto this podcast but i'm in a bit of sobriety at the moment because uh I'm in the midst of uh, an intense period of opening my own business uh, and, uh, you know, getting having any kind of drink oh, does wow. not allow me to, to efficiently work the next again day and I, I need to be, I need to be uh, firing on all cylinders. So. Oh, well, good for you. Is that the Thank kind of, you. is that something that talking about it on the podcast might be in any way useful or not? 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so I, uh, I, I own and in the process of stepping up the operation of, uh, of a comedy club called Monkey Barrel Comedy uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, so if any listeners are looking for a terrific night out in Edinburgh, you, uh, you are very welcome uh, to, to come to Monkey Barrel Comedy. We're, we're literally the dead centre of the city. We're just off the Royal Mile on a place called Blair Street. Uh, and we run seven nights a week. Um, and we, we were two nights a week, but we've decided to go seven and also uh, start to construct a bigger main theatre space with, um, with a lot more capacity. So it's... Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of manual construction work as well as marketing and PR that goes into the whole thing. So it's, uh, you know, oh, sometimes I'm doing like 18-hour days. So. Now, I've got to ask you a question. Of course. If you were in Edinburgh and you fancied a night out and you looked in the, you know, the, the, the pages which advertise entertainment in the evening in the local newspaper, yeah. and you saw something that said Edinburgh Comedy Club, and next to it was something else called the Monkey Barrel. Which one do you think you'd go to? <laughs> oh well, I'd have to go to the Monkey Barrel, of course. This good, is, uh, good. That, yeah, that's that's the, the same right club answer. that my yeah. mortgage needs you to go to as well. <laughs> yeah. Monkey Barrel, such a great name. Where did that name come from? Oh, mate. Oh, the story that's involved with coming up with that name. Uh, me and my business partner John spent maybe three or four days just whacking these increasingly belligerent and ridiculous names back and forth at each other. Uh, and we were just like, we're never going to find a name for this. Everything sounded wrong or weird or just, uh, you know, anti getting people through the door. And then it was my missus who just was in the pub one day and went, what about monkey barrel? And so, wow. so just simply, just one, you know, she is a genius. So, you know, this kind of thing comes very easily to her. But yeah, so it was my missus came up with it just off the cuff because... Uh, me and my business partner were just getting increasingly uh, maddened by sometimes by the name. you're too close to something, and sometimes you just need somebody with a bit of distance. Oh, but oh no- I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, some of the stuff we were coming up with. I mean, one of the one of the major ones that that in a fit of ridiculousness, I thought I th- here's here's an exclusive. I thought would be a good idea was to call it Merlin's Hernia. What a what a great <laughs> name. <laughs> For a comedy club. And it was basically just taking the letters of my name, the letters of my, my business partner John's, and putting them into like a kind of randomizer on the internet, which would come up with like various other words that you could make out of these things. Uh, and we thought that, you, you, you know, in the back of our heads thinking, you know, oh, cause ABBA had a component of each of, each wow. of the, their names. Maybe we could do something. It was ridiculous. ABBA, not exactly famous for their comedy though. Uh, no, no, they are not. Um, but I think if we called ourselves Merlin's Hernia, neither would we have been. So uh. no, <laughs> this is like when you read all the working titles, those old Doctor Who stories, yeah. and you're thinking, well, you, yeah, you could have called it Cat Flap, but you uh, decided not to. Yeah. And well, have you, very have you wise, seen, you were too. Have you ever seen the notes um, of all the names that they tried to work out for Monty Python's Flying Circus? All the oh episodes. yes, I have. Yes, that's amazing. Oh, yes, isn't it? I've seen a few of those, I think, but oh well. But then they come up with Monty Python's Flying Circus, and now you cannot think of it being anything else, can you? No, uh, what was it? Gwen Dibley's Flying Circus was one of the one of the <laughs> the nearly theirs. Wow, uh, could conceive. Of, I mean, I, I guess maybe you could conceive of it being calling that called that, but uh, no, Monty yeah. Python. That's what we all know and love. So it's some. 
Some names just have a ring about them. Even before you know what Monty Python's Flying Circus is, as soon as you hear the name Monty Python, or as soon as you hear the name Monkey Barrel, you know what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. I, hopefully people are in the mood for a, a laugh riot, because that's what we try and deliver uh, seven nights a week. <laughs> well, Sorry, speaking this, of... This, is, this has become largely a, 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 a massive advert for, for my business. Please well, come. Please yeah, come. but it's okay, because last week, Matt and Mark advertised their podcast relentlessly for an hour and a half without stopping. So I'm not making that. any money out of my podcast, though. That's uh, well, then you're like doing I it wrong. Plug something commercially here. You're doing it wrong, Matt. You're doing it wrong. Yeah, good point. Although none of us are making any money out of our <laughs> podcast because you just don't. So well, especially not in this country. But I'm not getting down international podcasting politics. So let's move swiftly away from there. But speaking of comedy clubs, we've got a subject to cover. And, uh, well, given that this was a very last minute change in subject, this might end up being a bit of a comedy episode anyway. Uh, the original plan was that four of us, two of us who were rather more pro and two of us who were rather more anti, were going to talk about Stephen Moffat. And effectively, what we were going to do was put Stephen Moffat on trial. And I suppose the question we were really asking is, is Stephen Moffat good for Doctor Who? Well, one of the ones who was absolutely central to that conversation sadly is not very well and has had to pull out. So, rather than going ahead and doing it without him, what we've decided to do is change the topic slightly so we can come back to Stephen Moffat in a couple of months. And instead, we're going to put Russell T. Davis on trial. <laughs> How exciting is that? Well, incredibly. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I think ever since fandom started up in the sort of mid to late 70s, fandoms always kind of, or at least a, a vocal portion of fandom, has always reacted badly against whoever's in charge. And for 10 years, John Nathan Turner was in charge, and we all know how much stick he got. Mm. And when Russell T. Davis arrived, he got the same stick. And now Stephen Moffat's there. He's getting the same stick. And it struck me that, I mean, the reason we were going to do Stephen Moffat was because he's current, but he's coming to the end of his run, so it seemed quite timely. But it struck me, why stop at Stephen Moffat? And here's the thing of it, this trial thing, is this person good for Doctor Who? That's really just an excuse to talk about the person who's running the show at the time, the script editor or the producer or the showrunner, to talk about them, to talk about the things they did differently, the innovations they made, and to basically ask two questions. Did the things they do differently really matter beyond the kind of conversations that fans have on forums and on Facebook and on Twitter and what have you? Does it matter to the general public that this person's doing it differently? And are the things that this person's doing differently good for Doctor Who? And I suppose... In that conversation, there are two answers. One is, is it good for Doctor Who the way the fans who are on the forum see it? And is it good for Doctor Who the way the general public who tune in in their millions see it? So we're going to get into the subject of Russell T. Davis and talk about, well, th at least this is the intention, talk about the things that he's done differently from the people who went before. And to that end, I've got about eight things that I've jotted down, because I don't usually do notes, but we changed changed the 
topics so last minute I thought I'd better put a few notes down to at least give us a starting point. So I've got about eight things I'll bring up and I think basically what we'll plan to do is I'll put those eight things one at a time to the pair of you and we'll just get into a conversation and see where it takes us and see if we come up with any conclusions at the end of the episode. Does that all sound okay? That's that right. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Before we do, though, I think we ought to all lay our allegiances on the line and, um, you know, just say whether we're coming at this from a position of loving Russell T. Davis or hating Russell T. Davis or being completely ambivalent about Russell T. Davis or somewhere in between. Ben, how do you feel about Russell T. Davis? Um... So I guess since we changed this from a Moffat episode to an RTD episode, it's uh, it's a tougher question now, um, you know, because I absolutely love Moffat. Uh, no shades of grey, absolutely love him. Mm. With RTD, I constantly wrestle with um, do do I like him? Do do I? I, I think I think largely I think largely yes I do. Um, I think he's been a positive force. I think he is, you know, across the board, a tremendous writer, all the uh, series that he's worked on. Yeah. Um, but there are just some things that, like no other showrunner in Doctor Who, greatly irk me. And <laughs> are, are little problematic landmines that litter his era. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'm tremendously excited to, to unpack all of this. Yeah, uh, I think those landmines probably... Well, in a Venn diagram sense, at the very least, are things that I've got written down. But Matt, how about you and Russell T. Davis? Uh, right, well, the short answer I would probably have to say, if I have to come down on one side or the other, is I would say I love him. Uh, I mean, I think he's, I think he's an absolute terrific writer. Um, I, um, and I, I guess it's a slightly weird thing because you know how everything these days has to be a, bloody culture war of some sort yeah it's, like, it, it, it's, it's so binary you've got <laughs> well, to thing. it's it's impossible to uh, it's impossible to say that you i mean so my situation is that i i love russell t davis uh stephen moffat era not for me particularly but i don't use one as a stick to beat the other if that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah. you know i think it's you know it's, it's just down to sort of personal preference really and 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 you know just what i enjoy watching but I mean, I would say that you know, I've I've got some qualifications to that. I you know, there's there's some criticism which I would level against him as a writer and a showrunner. Um, but but my basic position is I I thought his era of Doctor Who was absolutely terrific. Um, and then obviously going back and and rewatching uh, a lot of those episodes, you know, some eleven years on in 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 a few cases, but mm. I'll explain later. Uh, you know, have been you know surprised well not surprised but very pleased to see how well they stand up you know all this all this time on well i'm kind of the opposite to you in a certain way and i'm not a million miles away from ben in that my position is while russell t davis was in charge i absolutely adored what he was doing Mm. up until about three years in and then the cracks started to show a bit and then i really struggled a bit during certain bits of Series 4 and definitely the specials I struggled with. But the thing of it is, although I enjoyed it a lot at the time, as time has gone on, more and more of the sort of cracks in the ointment, if you were, are starting to sort of spring out at me. And I'm starting to have more and more trouble with some of the things he did. But I think in spite of that, 
I still think overall he's a massively positive force and did massively good things. I just think that the distance of time tends to focus in on the things he didn't do quite so well. You know, by compa- because once you get a bit of perspective on things, you start to put people in context. And well, I, yeah, and I think that's what we're going to be doing tonight is kind of putting him in context. I'd say it's probably worth also saying from the off, like, to, you know, the, the boring thing, which I think everyone would probably have to say is some sort of disclaimer to the Russell Davis era, is, you know, he was instrumental in getting the show yeah. back up, back on screen. Um, and I'm only saying this up front now so that we can acknowledge it and then never have to mention it again because it's well, such I a dull argument to keep having to come back to. It's like we have to be so grateful to him. But, but I think you know, but it's, it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, it's not only that uh, he had some sort of involvement in getting the show back on screen, but actually part of the rationale for the BBC commissioning a new series of Doctor Who was to try and poach him from the commercial channels that he was being very successful for with his work for ITV and, and yeah, Channel yeah. 4. So, you know, it was it was very much the case that although the, the BBC were open to commissioning new Doctor Who, clearly, because, you know, been bubbling under for a while, what tipped it over the line was that it was going to be Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who, and that was something that they could get behind. Well, I think two things... One, we're not going to get past. He's the guy who brought it back, but oh, we should though. I mean, yeah. I mean that sincerely. As a guy who absolutely loves his era, we should absolutely look at it as as how it stands in and of itself now. Because yes. you know, Doctor Who is back. He's he's done that. We need to see whether it was worth it. But I think one of the contextualizing questions is: Are the reasons he's doing certain things differently because he's the guy who's bringing it back? And that's going to come up over and over again i suspect but the other thing is and this is this is something that's not going to happen but i kind of as we do this podcast i kind of like to try and forget stephen moffat i, th- I want to oh, if i'd love pos- to forget stephen moffat sorry <laughs> that, was, that was a cheap shot resist it. i want to try if possible and contextualize russell t davis with what went before rather than what came afterwards because it's going to be difficult. Yeah, it is. There's a, there is there are a couple of there are a couple of uh, things in the RTD era that I, I think did irk me. Certain character traits, certain actions that were taken by various characters, which um, which Stephen Moffat and I I think I think it's been said elsewhere. I think that the biggest fan of the RTD era is Stephen Moffat, and there has been. Uh, I, I think in, in key episodes of his, an attempt to kind of um, reclaim and justify and correct things that happened within yeah, the yeah. RTD, RTD's era, which uh, which completely remove any uh, annoyance that I had because I now see it in a different light and understand it because essentially someone else has explained it to me in a different way. So on the other I, I hand, try, I will certainly try. Um, <laughs> well, the, no promises. I was going to say on the other hand. That's kind of the Stephen Moffat conversation that we'll have when we do the Stephen Moffat episode. Sure, okay. In a okay. way. Well, well, please please check me then if I start straying into Moffat's uh, territory. Well, I don't mind so much. But let, look, let me throw one of these things out. And it's a really obvious one to kick us off. But, I mean, I'll throw it out. I will level a criticism and give two or three examples of that criticism in action, as it were. And then... You know, let's discuss whether those criticisms are valid, and if those criticisms are valid, if there are underlying reasons that mitigate them. So the first thing I've got written down is, 
and I don't think this is going to come as a big surprise to anybody because it's been said many times, but Russell T. Davis doesn't seem to understand the science in the science fiction. And more specifically, the reason I bring this up is in many cases, in many of his episodes, the human drama works its way through to a logical conclusion, but the science fiction itself just comes to a deus ex machina and stops. And I mean... A couple of specific examples, because I don't just want to throw this out there without backing up my case. But you look at the end of the world, and the human drama builds and comes to a climax and a resolution. The science fiction, it's just a big off button. You know, an off button that turns up again in the Christmas invasion less than a year later. And just to demonstrate that he's still doing this years later... In Midnight, you've got a story about an invisible creature that can break through solid walls in order to get inside the vehicle, and they end the episode by chucking it out of the vehicle, and nobody says, well, hang on, it just came through that solid wall to get in in the first place, what's to say it's not going to do that again? But, again, the human drama has come to a proper resolution. So, is that a justified complaint to make against Russell T. Davis that the science fiction is beyond him. And, you know, contextualising this a bit further, he's not really done science fiction anywhere else in his career. I mean, apart from the children's ones he did early, but all his grown-up drama has pretty much avoided it. I'm just going to chuck this out. Whoever starts speaking first, you've got the floor. Right, that's me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you can go first next time, Ben. Um, I I think there is some truth to what you say, uh, but I think, uh, A, I don't care, uh, and B, um, I think that is something that you could equally uh, accuse lots of classic Doctor Who of as well. And I'd sort of break that down a bit further. I don't really think Doctor Who works particularly well when it tries to uh, obey the rules of uh, quote-unquote hard science fiction. Um, I don't really think of Doctor Who as a particularly sci-fi show beyond the fact that it has a sci-fi device at its core uh, which enables it to become a show that apes different genres every week. So, you know, I would expect the horror episodes to follow horror movie rules and, you know, the the things that, you know, you'd expect the sort of more action-y type adventures to to follow kind of action-based rules. I don't, I, you know, I think, um, yes, I mean, I think in terms of the, the sort of linear plotting, a lot of Russell T. Davis's, uh science fiction plotting is, is all about getting the characters from A to B because when they reach point B, they're at the position to, you know, hit the off button or, or, or flip the switch or do whatever it is in order to, to get people out of that situation. I think that was often the case with an awful lot of classic Doctor Who as well, but I think because the narratives are so much more compressed this time round, you know, going from sort of 100 minutes, you know, or even longer in some cases, down to to 45 minutes, uh, it's just a lot more noticeable. But, But I also think that, you know, as drama and as a dramatic experience and something to enjoy, I find I find the character work, which he is self-evidently more interested in telling. I mean, I think he would say that he's he's far more interested in telling a character story than some sort of pointy-headed kind of bidmead style kind of uh, <laughs> sci-fi sci-fi approach. Um, I, you know, I I find that so much more rewarding, um, and I I just think so much more in keeping with with Doctor Who. I mean, there's you know I I've never really been a 
a sci-fi fan to any great extent other than Doctor Who and I think you know I think Doctor Who is a is a sort of genre adventure show more than anything else uh, so yeah so I mean I think I think there is some truth to that I don't think it marks any difference uh, to classic Doctor Who and I don't mind because I'm I'm looking elsewhere for my entertainment in these episodes and so on the question of does it matter the answer is very obviously then no for me categorically not yeah Ben, do you have anything to add or counterpoint uh, yeah, that way? I mean, I, I, I guess I'm very much of the same opinion. Um, I, I, I see exactly what you mean. Um, there are lots of instances, particularly season finales, which um, after after enjoying it, uh, then a couple of days later considering it and thinking about it, you know, provide quite hang on a minute moments. Um, you know, like the Doctor at the end of uh, Last of the Time Lords psychically tuning himself into a mobile phone network um, and then, you know, like some sort of bizarre Christ figure floating across the room and, and that's how that that's how that is ended. Um, or, you know, like, I, I think the, the, the biggest problem I, I had was the kind of meta-crisis thing with, uh, with Donna um, because that did seem like an an awful lot of garbled, quickly delivered lines and words in order to cover up uh, what was, a, 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 you know, a, an idea that people could see through if if uh, the delivery yeah. was slowed down. Um, but I, you know, I'm with Matt. I I, I kind of don't care. Um, I kind of think it's a bit more noticeable now uh, because of, as you say, the compressed uh, episode run lengths. Um, I, I think you can say the same about Classic Who, uh, but I would say that maybe it's more noticeable, not just because of the compressed timeline, but, but also because there is the, the kind of the magic that the, that the series falls, for want of a better word, falls back on. Um, it's kind of magic that's much of a muchness. There are, you know, going back to what I said about the messianic doctor, th- that element as a, as a way of diffusing a situation shows up so often that you begin to, by the end of Tenant's Run, get a bit bored of that as a way out. You know, some kind of, um, you know, before now undiscovered character trait that the Doctor is suddenly able to do, which does seem like magic and, uh, you know, he's never exhibited this kind of behaviour before, but because the episode needs to finish in this way, he suddenly has the ability to do this particular thing. Um, there was, and to be honest, uh, as we get into the, uh, the end of Tenet's run, there is a lot more stuff like that, which, uh, which you do begin to go, oh, I see what he's doing. Yeah. There Actually, are a lot this of memes is, this and is... tropes and things like that that keep repeating themselves. Yeah. This is, gonna... this is true of any writer. Any yeah. writer is going to concern himself with the same kind of answers and ideas. Um, but I think it's far more, no- more noticeable now in Doctor Who because as you, you're, you're right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he doesn't really deal with science fiction. Um, and I think there is this, this, um, he, he uses a kind, he confuses science fiction and spectacle and uses spectacle, uh, as a way out of a lot of things. I think I would probably, sorry to bust in there, but I I would also say that I think that, uh, I'd, I'd agree with you that where this, my argument starts to break down a little bit would be in series finales, where I think that, um, you know, I, I, I 
I sort of think, with with the exception of uh, we we did a podcast uh, a couple of months ago on uh, the Stolen Earth and Journey's End, which uh, oddly I I really didn't like first time round, uh, but thoroughly enjoyed watching it this time round. But with the exception of that, I certainly think the first three series finales are on very much diminishing returns, um, and I, and I do think that's perhaps an area where. Because uh, the the series finale in the modern series is all about dramatically raising the stakes, um, and and dramatically raising the stakes to sustain over two episodes and serve as a sort of pulse pounding round out to the entire series, um, the situations where he does a kind of and you know one jump they were free or they got themselves into the right room to push the button or whatever kind of resolution uh, do can feel like more of a cop out simply because the stakes are that much higher. Um, and I and I do think uh, you know there's there's at least a couple of episode 13s that that Davis has written where it is very much him sort of scratching his head about how he how he gets out of this situation as much as anything else. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really enjoyed reading reading um, a writer's tale. Um, That's I'm, a great, very Yeah, it, it is, and I and I loved it for the the honesty of you know regardless of Doctor Who of of a writer talking about his process. And um, but what does come across is that RTD spends a lot of time thinking about the idea, uh, walking around, planning it out in his head. Um, and the, the, the nugget of each episode is always the human drama. It's the emotional core to it. Um, and then when he comes to write it, he writes just from like page one to the final page in, in one, you know, if you, if you've ever seen that film of, um, on the road, you know, Jack Kerouac writing, he just sellotapes all the paper together and keeps pounding at the keyboard until he's done with the typewriter. It, it is kind of like that. And you do, you do get a sense of seeing behind the magic of, of, uh, of a writer when he needs to, like he's in the last page, he's not going to go back and necessarily rewrite anything because it's to his uh, sensibility complete. Um, but yeah, you're right. He's scratching his head. How do I get out of this? I've got four more pages. Um, magic goblin phone starts floating across the room and stops <laughs> the master that way. That, that's how he does it. That's, um, <clears throat> at the worst a, one of all, actually, is end of time part one. End of the episode, everybody on Earth has been turned into the Master. Start of episode two, God waves a hand and all of a sudden everyone's back to normal. Yeah, and but, but with that as well, there, there again is uh, he's written to a great cliffhanger. Um, and then when you get back into part two, nothing, nothing is ever made of that. That is, that is such an interesting and intriguing um, concept. But every time in part two you start visiting the masters across the planet, they are in exactly the same position as when they were converted. Like I think yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, the the master as president of America for the entirety of episode two or until the spell is broken, the, the spell is broken. <laughs> he's he's still standing behind the podium where he's been delivering a speech. It's like And what? you know and that's what the problem is, isn't it? If you turn everybody on earth into the master Where's your drama? Because yeah. it's already happened. I suppose that's the thing as well, that it's, um, you know, I mean, this, Doctor Who has a quite a long history of, of cheating its cliffhangers. I mean, even in something that's, uh, you know, as unimpeachable a classic as Genesis of the Daleks, you'll still have the cheat of like, oh, that, that sheer drop from the top of the rocket uh, that she was facing was broken by a platform that was mysteriously not there earlier or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's 
that's been done before, and I think that's a sort of slightly unfair stick to start beating him with it now. But it, the reason why these things maybe stand out more now is is because you're right, because the, the dramatic consequences of those situations go unexplored in situations where he is otherwise very, very keen to explore the dramatic and character consequences of what happens rather than it just be a bit of sci-fi narrative that's advanced. Um, so so I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. I think the, uh, the resolution of cliffhangers is, is sometimes um, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. I, mean, I, think... I guess I should justify uh, saying that as well. As that I, I, I think that struck me uh, so hard, is because, and I've, I've said this on, on the time lash, is that I think the, everyone on Earth is the master is one of the greatest cliffhangers in Doctor yes. Who. I, I, it's, it is spectacular. Uh, and so I think so intrigued was I to see what is going to happen. Uh, that I was a little, well, I was incredibly disappointed that, uh, you have a lot of people that look like the master, but you only have one master. So nothing's really been, no stakes have been upped essentially. Yeah. Right, guys. I think we've actually, in the course of the last five or ten minutes, talked through all the other points I had to bring up. So I'll thank <laughs> you and that. say good night. <laughs> no, seriously though. Well, uh, one more point on, um, you, the stakes being raised in terms of the series over things that the classic series did that the new series can't get away with. And two things I've noticed, or two things I've brought up before. One about the cliffhangers. There are so, f so fewer of them these days that you kind of feel they have to put more effort in. But the other thing is, in terms of the resolutions, in the old days, you had an episode where you got to find out a little bit about what was going on. And it wasn't until four weeks or six weeks later that you found out how they were going to get out of it. And if the resolution to the plot, Pyramids of Mars, say, wasn't particularly good, that didn't diminish the first three weeks when you were watching the first three episodes. These days, you get into the start of an episode and 35 or 40 minutes later is when you get the resolution and because you don't get the week or the month in between you don't get time to savor the first two-thirds of the story before you get to find out how it ends and i think that's rather important in how we understand the resolutions sometimes anyway oh go on yeah any... i think I, I i think yeah there, there, there is certainly some truth to that and i think um you know, like as much as I was nitpicking certain things, I I am very loath to to criticise Russell T. I I don't want to go back to as we said. So we have to feel some kind of gratitude to him because he brought the series back. But what I what I really do think is that any as I've, I've said before, any kind of arcs I have of the era, it's I, I think it's entirely down to someone single handedly learning as he goes along but also teaching an, an audience 21st century doctor yeah trying to move away from the uh the, the four the five the six the seven parts that we used to have the way doctor who for 26 years was presented to us and for him to kind of shake the doctor who fan conditioning um of either be watching episodes in the classic manner or um you know writing doctor who novels um and and trying to learn how to do condensed doctor who um you know emotionally important doctor who um 
So you know, I you know, I I, I never feel particularly badly disposed to him uh, because you can see that any mistakes that are made are just uh, the mistakes that come from the construction of something brand new. You know, it's mm. uh, it's ironing out kinks. You know. I also find it very interesting that you use the phrase fan conditioning there because that's something that I've I've sort of thought a lot about. Um, in that, you know, I, I for a long time I thought that there was uh, a big tonal disjunct, or, or in terms of like looking at where the series priorities were in between the old series and the new series. Uh, and like I say, sort of on on our show, we we go back and we sort of smash together uh, different eras of Doctor Who and and sort of see what the common ground is. Uh, and I, I do sort of feel quite strongly now that, um, you know, f- for all that uh, we sort of say that the the new series has to obey conventional TV logic in a way that the classic series never did. I do really think a lot of that kind of conditioning about how, you know, Doctor Who's not about human drama, it's about sci-fi. You know, Doctor Who uh, doesn't engage with, you know, the outside world and pop culture and politics and sexuality and all these kind of things. Those don't stem from classic Doctor Who as a whole. I think that stems from classic Doctor Who in the 80s. This is something that I, I really, I've been surprised at how harshly I've ended up coming down on 80s Doctor Who in comparison to, you know, 60s, 70s and noughties, which I, I think that those are areas of Doctor Who that I think are made with a, with regard to making, first and foremost, just great drama with this great set of characters. I think this very sort of stock idea of what Doctor Who does and doesn't do is something that only sort of comes in in the 80s where I think the series becomes needlessly straitjacketed and needlessly antiseptic because it suddenly engages with the weight of its own history. Whereas I think, you know, you look at something like the Pertwee era or even, the, you know, the Hartnell era especially, it's like they, I think those are eras that have a huge kinship with the with the Davis era and the Moffat era in a different way. That I, I, I think this idea that, you know, that Doctor Who had to be somehow dragged into the mainstream or, or, or dragged into something that, that acknowledges the rest of TV that's going on around it is is really a kind of false dichotomy that only came up in the 80s. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. I, uh, I've, I we, can, we do something fairly similar in terms of podcasts and that we look at different eras simultaneously. And the nine times out of ten when we, when we come to wrap up, Mark and I will usually come to the conclusion that new who and old who, uh, there's really, in, in, in terms of what it makes you feel and the way that they try and uh, treat characters and the stories that they're trying to create, there's very little difference. Mm. Um, but yeah, you are very right. It's, there is this bizarre kind of swerving off into something a little more, um, I think alien when you hit the you know you hit the mid eighties. Uh, well, uh, just to butt in just slightly. Sorry, John it's Nathan- your show, so feel free. <laughs> <laughs> well, John Nathan Turner's "No hanky panky in the Tardis" is obviously a really famous quote, but but to me, and especially listening to you two talking about it, it strikes me that that expression doesn't just refer to sex in the Tardis, but it, it kind of refers to all sorts of modern relationships in the TARDIS is almost like that expression by itself covers a multitude of antisepticisms that John Nathan Turner wants to bring to the show that kind of ring out the human drama so that you're only left with the dry science fiction. Well, I think it's just an excuse for, you know, absolutely 
nothing characters like Nissa. You know, mm. I mean, there's absolutely nothing there at all. She's not a person. She's a, she's an actress reading lines off a page. You know, it's, uh, it's I I've always I, I was thinking about that phrase earlier. Actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I, I was never quite sure what it meant, you know, whether or not, you know, whether he was saying no hanky panky in the TARDIS, uh, simply because he felt that this is a children's show and, you know, the, there are adult topics which are, which are outside the boundaries of what we can deal with on children's TV, uh, which, you know, is a view that I could probably respect, even if I think it's a bit of a cop out. I think something like the Sarah Jane Adventures shows that you can show a huge amount of emotional range in a, in a children's TV series. Um, you know, or is it about no hanky panky in the TARDIS means that actually creatively, these topics of, of personal relationships and, and, and sexuality and romance and all these kind of things are just creatively off limits for Doctor Who. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I think it's no coincidence that as soon as, you know, other, you know, in the 90s, other people start writing Doctor Who in different media um, and, you know, you get, you get fresh voices coming into it. And that's one of the first things that gets revisited. Yeah. Uh, is that, is that why, why is this rule in place and what does it mean? It seems, it seems just a pointless way to hamstring yourself from telling good drama. Right, I'm going to butt in at this point and bring us back to Russell T. Davis before Sorry, we yes, too I've gone about J&T there. Well, I don't mind tangents. There's, uh, this podcast has been known to go off at tangents that have lasted over an hour, but we don't have time to do that tonight. But, in order to stay on topic, I'm going to do- go down my list and rather than come up with one that I think is related to the first thing I brought up. I'm, I'm going to bring up this one. This is not a criticism, but this is an innovation. And I, well, I, we've already gone over the ground somewhat, but just to put a nail in it, do we think this was advisable and do we think it was successful? But Russell T. Davis was, for better or worse, the first person in charge of Doctor Who to overtly bring the idea of the Doctor being in love into the programme. Is that a wise innovation? Does it work? Should it have been avoided? And in the end, was it a good thing? Ben, you can go first this time. Uh, well, this is exactly what I was um, alluding to, uh, talking about um, there are certain things that Stephen Moffat's era has done to uh, to justify. Um, I think I, I think I was largely I was kind of uncomfortable with the Doctor in love. Um, you know, I, and I think I think we can safely say that that is what it is. I mean, didn't David Tennant at a convention a little while ago admit that uh, yes, Rose and the Doctor were boyfriend and girlfriend? Uh, uh, yes, of course, that kind of thing. Um, and. I think I was uncomfortable with it because, again, the fan conditioning idea, that's not what the Doctor does. Um, not to say I didn't enjoy seeing it unfold. I mean, I, 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 one of my favourite interactions between the Doctor and, and Rose is uh, when they're having a bit of a, a fight in the street and school reunion outside of the cafeteria where he says something like, you can, you know, you can spend all your life with me, but I will just keep on growing older. You know, I'll forget you one day. Um However, what Stephen Moffat in in creating the War Doctor in in showing us the the sheer hell that for a great period of time the Doctor's life would have been as a as a warrior as, as somebody who's had to take a brutal and final action against his own people. And before you um, go on, let's just not forget that that was just a logical extension of 
where Russell T. Davis had brought the programme out of that we hadn't seen. Oh, absolutely. But the idea that we were able to now visualise it, that yeah, we were yeah, able yeah. to, um, you know, front row seats to, to essentially share the Doctor's pain rather than kind of a couple of little ambiguous um, moments where you don't really understand the full magnitude of what this, this character for, for a period of time would have experienced. Um, you know, I think I do not begrudge the Doctor as a character at all to start letting somebody like Rose in, particularly since Rose is so instrumental, it seems, in bringing him back to the idea of what he as the Doctor is. I mean, like, if I'm sure if I experienced something like that in my life, I think that I would feel an incredible emotional gratitude and, and certainly a love um, for, for that person. So, so the Doctor being in love, it seems perfectly in character for where the Doctor in that point in his life is. Um, so I no longer have any kind of a, of a problem with it. And if I'm honest, you know, like, it's a fairly wholesome sort of love. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I it was very interesting and, and enjoyable to appreciate that, I think, rather than, you know, a particularly kind of James Bond sort of a thing. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's my assertion that there was no sexual intercourse between the Doctor and Rose. It's, it's always been my understanding that it was an unrequited love in that sense. But I mean, I suppose that's open to interpretation, but that's just the way I interpret it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, if there's one thing that Russell T. Davis has done brilliantly and successfully, it's introducing to a mainstream audience different of different ideas of not just sex, but of love. Um, and I, I think what something with the Doctor and Rose say is that you can have a wonderful, fulfilling, well, okay, so at least 50% of, of that relationship can have a wonderful, fulfilling, um, sense of another person without anything particularly, um, sordid or grubby or, <laughs> or, or anything like that, you know. Um, yeah, sorry, yes. <laughs> I completely drifted off this. Well, well, perfect time for Matt to come in then. Bring in love into Doctor Who. Good, bad, ugly? Uh, I'm going to uh, very pretentiously say I think it's very honest. I think it's a very honest approach that he took. Um, I don't think entirely that the way the Tenth Doctor's relationship with Rose was uh, was written, you know, as you know, what is, you know, clearly meant to be a romantic relationship that is unfolding and then breaks up on the screen was uh, handled particularly brilliantly, um, I'm going to say, because I, I think I've got a few criticisms with that. But I, the example that I would bring, it's interesting that Ben mentioned school reunion. Um, I think there's a very interesting thing that uh, Davis and Whithouse, to his credit, because obviously he wrote that episode, uh, do, which is the recasting of Sarah Jane's relationship with the fourth Doctor, or at least the third and fourth Doctors, as as being a sort of quasi-romantic one. Um, and I think that's... I, I think too often this idea of sort of uh, creating creating a romantic role for the Doctor kind of uh, get a bit annoyed at how sort of reductive it is to come down to a sort of base question of like, right, are they kissing? Are they having sex, essentially? Whereas I think there's something very moving and very honest about the way Sarah um, makes it very clear that the gap that the Doctor left in her life after he he left her back on Earth, um, you know, in the 70s, uh, was the gap left by a the end of a romantic relationship. 
Um, and I think it's I think it's very truthful to suggest that um, you know two people who would you know ostensibly drop everything and travel the universe together are going to have some sort of relationship that that is at least analogous to romantic love. I think um, I think it's absolutely understandable that there would be a level of attraction there. Um, I, I think it's dishonest to suggest otherwise. And I think, you know, again, not, not to keep harking on about mistakes made in the 80s, but I think if you go in the other direction where you have these sort of strange relationships like the Doctor and Nyssa or the Doctor and Perry where you, you just don't understand why these people are together and there seems to be no chemistry there whatsoever. Um, it's, uh, I, I, just think it, I just think it's truthful. I think there's, there's nothing prior to the 80s that suggests that the Doctor is a character not capable of having a romantic relationship. You know, we've seen him flirt on screen. You've seen him have his heart broken. I mean, I, you know, I defy you to look at the end of The Green Death and say that is not a man who's suffering a breakup at that point, a romantic breakup. Uh, you know, you look at uh, the fourth Doctor and the second Romana, where the, you know, that, it, naturally because of the, the chemistry that the, because of the situation the actors were in at the time, the sexual chemistry just, you know, oozes off the screen. Sorry, it's a horrible turn of phrase. I apologize for that. But, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just, it's just honest again. It's just this, I don't know where this antiseptic idea of the fact that the Doctor would somehow be above these things, you know, that he's a kind of Mr. Spot character in the way he looks at the universe. Um, I just, I just don't buy it, and to suggest that he's capable of those kind of relationships, you know, I, I, I think a lot of what this comes. Sorry, I'm getting on my high horse here, but I think a lot of what this comes down to is that what Davis sort of forcibly reasserts in his writing of the Doctor is he writes the Doctor as a character rather than an archetype. I think the mistake that. Um, some earlier eras of Doctor Who make is to, because we're meant to sort of buy into this idea of, you know, the Doctor is a mystery, he's an enigma, he's something beyond, something far higher than anything we can understand. I think that's too often used as a as a stocking excuse to actually not write him as a character, to just write him as a person who, you know, doesn't do anything, doesn't have any, doesn't have any sort of grit to him. Um, as a series of verbal ticks and lapel grabbing, that kind of that exactly, kind of and it's it's just awful, you know. It's like this this idea, this idea that ultimately, you know, he's a person. He might be a person who has a completely different morality to you. He might have a different outlook and perspective on time, but he's still a character, and you've got to have some sort of got to have something to latch onto there. And you know, I think something you especially see that so strongly in the Eccleston series where. You know, for the first time in you know ages, the Doctor is being written as a character. He's he's flawed. He gets it wrong. You know, he he has you know a genuinely alien perspective on things, as opposed to he just you know doesn't talk like a human. Um, and and I think that's where all of this stems from. It's like it's actually it's, it's actually writing him as an interesting fleshed out character, as opposed to just an archetype. Okay, I've got a genuine criticism then that stems out of what you were just saying, and especially what you were saying about emotional honesty. And my genuine criticism is this. Every year during the Russell T. Davis years that Doctor Who was on, the Doctor and the Companion would kiss, and it was always a cop-out with some sci-fi explanation like they're transferring the vortex or he's transferring DNA to her lips or she's getting the poison out of him or whatever. None of those kisses had any honesty. And just to uh, 
bring bring it back to something Ben said earlier. That's something that Stephen Moffat corrected, for want of a better term, in that Stephen Moffat would put genuine kisses in there. But the criticism is, if Russell T. Davis was being emotionally honest, why did he always need to give some cruddy sci-fi cop-out explanation for when the Doctor and the Companion kissed? Because um, I think one of the, the unsung qualities of Russell T. Davis is he's one of the most mischievous writers uh, on television. And and I, I, I think he genuinely wrote all of those moments so that uh, a decade later people would be talking about it on podcasts <laughs> and trying to work out what was going on. Um, I, I, I just think he did it as a laugh. <laughs> that's that's all. I completely agree, and and I would go further and say that you know I I think they're funny for that reason. I sort of enjoy the fact that you know it's 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 him. You know he's he's sneaky, Russell T Davis, in terms of the way he writes. He's always he's always got an eye to the audience in in I think quite an interesting way, and he he never quite gives you you know what you want. Um, and you know, in a, in a positive way, there's like there's a lot of grit in the oyster there. So you know, it's like I think it's it's entirely fitting with his sort of uh, mischievous worldview that series one would end with the final, you know, the long-awaited kiss between Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper. But it's you know, it's it's for that reason. You know, I, yeah. I, it gets a bit repetitive, um, and I think that that sort of points to a slightly wider thing that I think he does. I think you know, as, as Ben alluded to, sort of at the beginning. You know, three three or four series into his run, he does start sort of recycling the same tropes again. The same things come round and round again. So you know, I remember by the time he kisses Kylie, I was sort of thinking, and and she's ghost Kylie or something. I remember thinking, yeah, we kind of seen this before. But but I I think it's I think it's fun and funny, and it, it doesn't bother me. Well, somebody once said to me that the third time it happened, he was pulling his hair out, and the fourth time it happened, he was peeing himself laughing, which I guess is you know, an indication of the fact that at first it started to seem, oh God, why is he doing this again? Before eventually you go, oh right, now it's time for this again, is it? Hmm. Well, I'm going to change the subject slightly and go back to something that's related maybe to where we came in on the conversation. These are a couple of I don't know, points. I don't know if they're criticisms. I think one of them certainly a criticism. I think the other one's only really retrospectively a criticism. Or at least it's a personal criticism from my point of view. But I'm going to do these both together because I think there's something that connects them. One of the things is, <clears throat> now that we've had Ross, um, Stephen Moffat, and I said well, I wasn't going to do this like this, but sometimes you just have to. Now that we've had Stephen Moffat, I've really grown used to the idea of never knowing quite what you're going to get in terms of, is it going to be a two-parter? Is the series going to be split? Is it going to go over Christmas? Is the Christmas special going to be a part of the story arc? Whereas with Russell T. Davis, you'd have 13 episodes of discrete story formed out of 10 single-part episodes and three two-parters, and then you'd have a Christmas special, and then at exactly the same time the following year, you'd have exactly the same thing again. And I think Russell T. Davis was so impressed with his own format for the first series that he allowed the format to dictate things. And here's where I think it becomes a criticism. In the first series, I think the arc is plotted out among the episodes, with each one of the episodes introducing something, not necessarily a sort of plot mechanism, but sometimes an emotional character beat that would improve, that would prove important further down the line. And in that first series, all these moments 
sort of came in in what felt like their natural place. And then in the second series, because he had exactly the same format in terms of where the episodes lay, it felt almost like he got to the point, and, you know, Age of Steel, where Mickey goes off into the alternate universe, you know exactly how the rest of that series is going to go down, and the next five episodes have to tread water before you can get there. And then in the third series, you've got the introduction of Martha, and Russell T. Davis spends seven episodes demonstrating how Martha's not Rose, before giving her four episodes to prove who she is, including two episodes in which the Doctor's pretending to be a human, and one episode which is the Doctor Light in which she barely appears, before she goes walkies around the Earth, proving that she can be a warrior. It just struck me, looking at this, that Russell T. Davis was so beholden to his own formula about how the series should be in terms of episodes that he allowed that to dictate the pacing of his storytelling, sometimes to the detriment of the storytelling. And I think the worst example of all of that is the fact that three episodes, less than a quarter of the way into the series with Donna, that Ood is saying, your song is ending soon. Well, no, it's not. It's ending in just a little bit over three quarters of the series. You know, that was a really strange place to put that. Uh, Either of you can answer that. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Or do you think that's just the way it had to be? Um, Matt, we'll go with you first, I guess. Um, I, I sort of vehemently disagree to the, the first bit of your point and, and sort of somewhat agree to the second bit. So, uh, to go at it in reverse order, um, I, I think, I, I think the problem, uh, the, the, the problem that he has, uh, and this is a very luxurious problem to have, that I think he, he absolutely nailed it first time out. Yeah. I think the Christopher Eccleston series is, uh, you know, by far my favourite of the the entire new series run since the show came back, um, and I think you know there is an argument to be made uh, that it's it's probably the the most consistently good, effective end to end run or series run of Doctor Who that's ever been made. I think it's absolutely terrific, um, and I think there is uh, there's a there's a couple of series after that two and three very much of kind of running on the spot. It's the difficult second album syndrome. It's that. There's, you know, what do you change? Uh, what do you, what do you keep? You know, there's a major change in the cast each year for the rest of his run. Uh, I think there's quite often a hope that that's going to sort of sustain, sustain interest uh, in it, whilst it sort of hits the same beats, uh, beats week on week. And I think, you know, there is a formula to how the series pan out. And it's, it's sort of quite obvious where it's going. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think he does hit a formula, and I think, you know, my, fan as I am of, of his era. You know, I, I I did feel that in terms of how the stories are told, it was it was time to see something new at the point where he decided to chuck in the towel. That said, um, the things that you've praised, and that this is not to make it a, a bash Moffat podcast, but I think the things that you've praised about how you know the the format of the series change has changed year on year under Moffat, and I, I would agree with that. I think he's you know he's he's thrown the um, he. he, he sort of change, tears up the format and, and tries something new with sort of wild abandon year after year. But I do rather feel that those are cosmetic changes to disguise the fact that I think he's a much more limited storyteller than Russell T. Davis. I think there's a very uh, there's a very small number of tropes and ideas that, that Moffat keeps working out. And I actually find it sort of interesting. I think I, I mentioned last week that I was much more of a fan of the Capaldi series than I was of the Matt Smith series. 
Um, and I think part of the reason why I think they're more effective is because Moffat has sort of worked out, you know, how to get these ideas to work in a way that, that lands rather than, a, you know, what I would feel is the kind of slightly flawed and bitty and dissatisfying way he teases out a lot of these ideas in the Matt Smith era. But I think, you know, the, I, I find, although there's, uh, there's a sort of surface cosmetic kind of novelty to the way each series under, under Matt Smith, uh, plays out, I think that there's quite a tiresome repetition to the ideas with, with, as far as I'm concerned, far less rich characters, which means that I think it's, um, I, I think there's a bit of, bit of Emperor's New Clothes going on there. I find, I find that far less satisfying. Whereas, you know, I think, I don't think Martha's a particularly well-drawn character, but I think, you know, otherwise I think that the character beats that he introduces year on year in the, in the, in the Davis era, uh, although, uh, cleaving to a formula i still think that the, the writing there is 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 far more is is rich enough to sort of paper over the repetition to how the series is paced ben how do you feel about all that yeah i mean i so i guess going back to the point um about russell t being somebody who's having to simultaneously learn how to do doctor who and teach it to other people i think we've, we've kind of we're kind of at that point again um I think maybe, uh, and I, I think he's he's always very guarded about admitting this, but I, I, he comes close, I think, in the writer's tale, where he says that he, I, I think, is that he's genuinely he was taken aback at how successful, right out of the door, Doctor Who was, um, and so from a showrunner point of view, I think he thought that with as a fan also wanting to make sure that there was a, a, a continuation uh, for the foreseeable future of the show. There were certain things that he would have, as a showrunner, as a producer, would have had to have done to try and in, ensure the success of that show. And one of those things is to try and absolutely wrap it into people's brains that it's on at a particular time of year, that the series unfolds in a particular way, that um, that there is a degree of familiarity that people can easily grab, grasp hold of and therefore associate it with a particular feeling or time of year or a, a, a gearing up to, you know, to sit down and, and, and enjoy it, to ensure its success. It's, it's always got to be at a specific place, a specific time, doing a specific thing. Um, and But I think also what he was slightly misjudged as well is people's um, knowledge of, of classic Doctor Who. Um, you know, we live and breathe it as fans, but I, I think that it's permeated society even before it came back in such a way that people fully understand that Doctor Who is about change, that, that the doctors, the faces change of the Doctor, but the cast, uh, the companions do as well. So he maybe then, uh, unfortunately, series two and three labors certain points. Um, because he thinks that the, the populace watching is uh, less um, uh, less familiar with the engineering of the show than than he thinks, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying, Matt. That I don't think uh, um, uh, uh, Martha is particularly as well drawn a character as as Rose, but there's something infinitely appealing, I think, about Freeman Adjuman playing Martha, wherein I got I, I got really quite annoyed that the Doctor would keep bringing up Rose until about halfway through uh, that series, um, rather than as a showrunner Russell T understanding like we get it we get it let's just get on with some adventures now um so I so I think again that it's it's just been a case of somebody who has 
got basically a grasp of what he's trying to do, but um, under or overcompensated in certain areas uh, in order to, to, to make that show uh, an unmitigated success um, fixed, you know, like permanently and routinely in, in the, the lives of a modern audience, you know. Well, here's a here's a, a slightly weird one, and I find this in a lot of Russell T. Davis's writing elsewhere too. Yeah, I've seen most of the things he's done, and I'd seen most of the things he'd done before Doctor Who came on. For somebody who is so enthralled, is so enthralled to character storytelling, a lot of Russell T. Davis's characters are so broadly drawn that sometimes they can come across as caricatures i think jackie and mickey and in spite of episodes like love and monsters i think jackie and mickey for example never really escape from that am i completely wrong to say that yes in my opinion it's <laughs> <laughs> very blunt i think um i think russell t davis is a phenomenal observer of class and i think um he is uh I, I think he's able to write with, uh, you know, certainly, I think, reasonably unparalleled in, in all of people have written for Doctor Who. But I think generally in, in terms of TV writers as a whole, I think there are very few people who can sketch uh, class and character and personality so efficiently and so rapidly. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, I, I, I could understand if you're sort of feeling that there isn't much development to those characters as it goes on. And in fact, you know, they are perhaps put in increasingly ludicrous situations so that you get to the point where you know you get the finale of series four and 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 jackie's turning up wielding a massive gun uh which 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 seems odd but i think um and especially when you look at those those sort of series one episodes where you know just tiny lines about you know jackie needing to um get the money together for the lottery syndicate and you know all this kind of stuff it's i i i think no, I, I I completely disagree. I think he's he's got a grasp of dialogue um, that with just with a few words he can so fully flesh out a character that you know everything you need to know about them. I think if the characters have an air of familiarity, it's only because he's done such a good job of setting them up. Um, I, and I, I think I genuinely think that's the case. Um, you know, this is something uh, I know that that John on our podcast feels very strongly about as well. That it's um, so many of those episodes, especially compared to. Um, some of the more recent ones uh, feel stuffed full of characters who you, you just instantly know who they are because because the writing and the, and the dialogue is sort of so efficient at just just nailing exactly who that person is and I, I, I really think that's his gift one of his great gifts as a dramatist not just as a writer of Doctor Who Ben then yeah, considering a... considering before you answer whose podcast you're on are you with Matt or are you with me ah <laughs> uh... Listen, mate, I mean, you know, Matt's speaking uh, a great degree of truths here. Um, uh, I tell you, there is, there is something um, of, uh, of Russell T, which reminds me a lot of, um, of Alan Bennett, uh, in that with, with sheer economy, he's able to create living, breathing characters, uh, primarily using humour. Um, and I think that's certainly what you have with people like um, Mickey and Jackie. I would say, though, that maybe one of the, the, the misjudgments is certain degrees of casting um, or, or, you know, casting certain people and then having characters 
say certain things about uh, about about characters that that don't necessarily get bored. For, for instance, um, I think that Noel. I'm a big fan of Noel Clark. Um, oh, I think I he's love, great. To be fair, <laughs> yeah, I absolutely love him. But the thing is, I think he just as a guy is too cool. I never buy that he's an idiot. So it gets really irksome when people keep referring to him as an idiot, or he himself, say, like in Boomtown, uh, refers to himself as an idiot, or puts him, you know, puts himself in the kind of self-deprecating position of admitting that he's an idiot. It's like, I never, I don't buy that, mate. I don't, you, like, you're, you've never shown me anything that would suggest you've been immaculate, you've been one of the best things to watch on this series, but I never buy that you're a, that you're an idiot. So there is a certain degree of um, of disconnect that happens uh, there, I think. Um, but I do agree with you uh, that there are there are certain characters that are written so broadly as to be incredibly disinteresting uh, to the to the point that you can like. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Love and Monsters because I spend a lot of time questioning why any of them are doing what they're doing. Um, and you know conducting their lives in the manner that they are or you know just uh none of them seem like real people um at all and and it is it is kind of smaller um little you know like episode only characters that i i share that problem with um that they are they are far too broadly drawn so, so, I, so I, I fall, I, I fall in the middle i guess of, of your two viewpoints go on matt I, I almost think Love Monsters for me is just one of those perfect examples of where he gets it right. I mean, I think it's it's a large, it's it's a big cast, it's an unwieldy cast of, of new characters that he introduces. But I do feel that all of them, uh, just because of the you know the incredibly efficient way he's able to draw on these sort of archetypes from 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 different class backgrounds and you know characters that we. We have familiarity with uh, from elsewhere. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a phenomenal lineup of characters, and I, I think they, all, to me, they all really do. Even though that you know they get a fraction of the screen time for one episode only, I think they do come across as real, living, breathing people, and I think that's one of the heartbreaking things about the episode. Where personally, I mean, I really love it, but I became very sort of emotionally invested in it because. I, I really, I really did like their club, and I, I bought their chemistry. And I think when it all gets gets broken up and they all start dying, I was, I was terribly, terribly sad. I'm going to bring up one more thing then before I get to the big question to end. Oh, wow. And and this other thing is not really a major thing, and I think it's pretty self evidently answers itself. But by the end, does Russell T Davis get too self indulgent? Because I mean, it seems to take him maybe two and a half years to really figure out, you know, exactly what he's doing. In spite of the fact that that first series is, as you say, Matt, almost perfect, it's about two and a half years before he's really comfortably doing it, and it seems very quickly then to escalate into self-indulgence to me. And certainly by the time he gets to the specials, I think you, I don't think many people would argue that the end of time, for example, is a bit self-indulgent. And for my money, the biggest self-indulgent in his entire five years is solving a plot by having a character commit suicide at the end of the waters of mars but i mean do either or both of you agree do you think he does get self-indulgent rather quickly towards the end uh i i i don't i don't know um i think maybe it's less self-indulgence and more a kind of 
over four years we were used to economy and brevity and a, and you know like 45 to 50 minutes of a run and then beginning as he gets to the like as episodes towards the end of his run get longer and longer um finding that suddenly that rule is being tampered with and we are getting longer and so you kind of you have a plot that has a bit more room to breathe um but understanding you know having been shown over the, the previous four years how you would have been able to have done that far more economically and quickly um when i think of self-indulgence really the only thing that that, that that comes to mind springs to mind is the 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 doctor's thousand year uh stretch before regenerating at the end of the end of time i think everything else kind of you know like earns its place um or 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 really is you know is a writer being given a, a slab of time and 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 filling it so it's not necessarily that he's become self-intelligent it's just that he's he's a he's a writer that's been given extra time and has to do that though on a on a you know a budget that has not increased with the time slot you know um so you get a bit more treading water i think uh i i completely disagree i think i think there's uh there's something very interesting that starts to creep into his writing around series four and the specials uh, which I think gives gives him a renewed vigor, and I think um, you know, aside from series one, I think makes those uh, that run of, of series four into the into the sort of gap year specials um, possibly the, the the second most interesting sort of period of his writing. Um, I think, uh, as we said earlier, I think the phenomenal success of series one sets a sem- template uh, for series two and three that I think he can't quite match. Um, I think I I sort of consider. You know, with with some very good episodes within them, I, I consider those two series to be sort of somewhat running on the spot. But I think as uh, I think a very interesting thing starts to happen as he he realizes that he's approaching the end of his time writing on the show, that he he actively starts to dismantle uh, a lot of his own worldview and a lot of his own moral framework that he creates for for the characters and and how they exist um, in a way that is very much designed to sort of effectively pull the whole thing apart and, and leave Stephen Moffat with a completely clean playing field to, to, to make the show his own. I think um, a lot of that kind of humans first sort of overly optimistic worldview that series one to three kind of espouses is much more kind of cynically and suspiciously treated. I think there's all sorts of interesting scenes. There's the, um, uh, there's the woman, I can't remember the character's name, but in the Ood episode, the... Uh, the woman who's the sort of PA administrator yeah. character, uh, who you know is is one of that feels like one of those very Russell T Davis characters who's going to be given a split second decision or, or is given the opportunity to make a decision by the Doctor, um, and you know would in earlier series be given a moment of heroism, but instead she just sells out to her base instincts and and, and raises the alarm. I think you've got you know a lot of the conversations in the End of Time. Sort of flawed as it is, are absolutely fascinating. You know, the the, the two tramps talking about how they can't share in the uh, optimism about Barack Obama sorting out the world economy because it's not going to be a solution that 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 will ever they'll ever see the benefits of. Which you know feels incredibly prescient, knowing where we are now in world politics. Um, and I I think a lot. And then obviously the doctor then. You know, going from a sort of uh, a flawed hero to someone who actually becomes quite unhinged and egotistical, and ultimately needs to effectively 
die to give himself a, a clean break. Um, I, I think the the self-indulgent thing to do, I think, would just be to keep going bigger and bigger and bigger on the same set of themes. But I think the way he's able to sort the way he seems quite happy to take a, a, a wrecking ball to a lot of his his worldview and his own creations in that in that final run to effectively just sort of you know eliminate everything at the point where the the tenth Doctor regenerates into the eleventh. I think is is um, you know the opposite of indulgence. I think it's incredibly brave and 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 shows like I think humility on the part of the writer almost just to say, yeah, I'm, I'm I, I set it all up now. I'm going to pull it all down. <laughs> well, guys, unless either of you got anything further you want to throw in, <laughs> <clears throat> either uh, no, of you have. I, no, I just uh, just coming back to the self indulgence thing. It's like uh, no, I I I I feel maybe I didn't say what I I needed to have done. Is that um. Uh, I think no, I'm completely with with what Matt has said. Uh, I just kind of feel like a lot of people do um, consider uh, RTD a bit indulgent towards the end because he is given longer run times, uh, and so scenes that you kind of think would have been on the, the cutting room floor uh, remain in. And I and I and I think people do kind of look at that and do take it as self indulgence as a producer who. Who has somehow demanded that extra time, as opposed to has been given it, or, 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 or you know, as Matt says, wants to do something, um, you know, creatively quite, quite brave, but to, to, you know, to, to sprinkle it through the episode in very subtle, very charming, very character moments, rather than have full-on action-packed, or you know, blasts of of, of story and technology. Um, so so yeah, sorry, I, it was just I was approaching the question in a different manner there. I uh, I, I don't really think he is self-indulgent particularly, um, and I guess if we are wrapping up, it kind of leads in to say that uh, for every time that you uh, raised a criticism, I think my my gut feeling and my first instinct was to to defend the guy and see the and and, and see the the the, the real the greatness because you know I, I i feel now doctor who is still on but i feel now incredibly nostalgic for rtd doctor who i when it was on i, I really did love it and i i think yes i prefer moffat who um but i i you know i i miss rtd's way of doing things and telling story and the characters that he populates Doctor Who with, and uh, you know, so I, I, I miss the guy, <laughs> and and that type of Doctor Who. I, I, I think if we come out of this uh, with, a, with a definite decision, is yes, I love RTD. Well, the question is going to come, but actually, you've just brought something else to my mind, and I, very briefly, then Christmas Invasion, Runaway Bride, and a bunch of other episodes. Basically, it's action television, and for 35 minutes, it's action television, and then you get to the climactic face-off between the villain and the hero, and all of a sudden, it stops dead for a 20-minute scene in a single room. Uh, yes, I think uh, I, I think that is, is again, the idea that it's an elongated runtime, but not an elongated budget, so things have to be done. <laughs> economically and creatively uh, and sometimes you can see the cracks but i mean hasn't he hasn't he been on record that runaway bride was indeed supposed to have been i think in series one or series two uh it was always supposed to have been just a normal episode uh and then it was bumped up it was elongated but it was um 
he was created with no additional budget. He just had to be somehow fitted in to, uh, I think, Series 2's budget. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it, I think Tooth and Claw replaced it, although they shuffled where the episodes were going to be. And in actual fact, um, this is why Series 2 is the only one which doesn't follow the three singles, double, three singles, double, two singles, double format, because when they shuffled the episodes around, they bumped one more from the middle to the start, which put Rise of the Sidemen back to episode five instead of episode four, where it was supposed to have been. It was the Stephen Fry episode as well, wasn't there, that went missing somewhere along the line? When, that was, that was series two as then, well, wasn't, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I believe the girl in the fireplace was going to be mid-series, and then they put that up to the front so that they could have uh, Mickey in it, I guess. I don't know. I can't remember exactly what happened, but it was supposed to be um, New Earth, and then it was going to be the forwards in... No, New Earth was the forwards in time one, wasn't it? I can't remember. Rise of the Side one was going to be episode five, and then all of a sudden... Episode four, and then all of a sudden it was episode five. Anyway, Matt, I mean, do you have anything to add to what Ben just said about my sort of thing about the pacing within the episode sometimes? Well, actually, I was just sort of thinking about something Ben mentioned there, uh, which I, I would quite like to follow up on about feeling nostalgic for that era. And and that's something that um, I, I've been really interested in going back and revisiting a lot of the, the Davis era ones, is that I, I'm very nostalgic for that era too. But I think... Um, those stories are starting to date in really interesting and satisfying ways. Um, you know, I, I personally, I, I think just, and I, I feel this about all sorts of, you know, art, music, film, all, all, all this kind of thing, um, that's stuff that strives to be timeless um, and, and not belong to its era, um, I have a bit of a problem with because I think quite often stuff can end up sort of quite bland and disconnected. I like stuff to engage with the, the world as it was at that time and and to represent that era and i think oddly it's like you you look back at um and it's not just that the effects have moved on in the last sort of 11 uh, 12 years or that the direction has got much better or i think in a lot of cases it has but i feel you know those those stories feel very much uh, uh you know representative of of the mid noughties in a way that sort of reminds you that the mid noughties was a long time ago and that the that the world has changed an awful lot in the last sort of 11 or 12 years um, and I, I find that very satisfying to go back and look at them that, you know, they feel as much as part of their era as Tom Baker feels at the 70s or as Hartnell feels at the 60s or something. And I, th- I think that's that's a wonderful thing that those those episodes, there's not been there's not been too much attention paid to the sort of potential afterlife on Netflix or on DVD. It's very much that it exists as a time capsule of its of its era. Right. Big question time then, guys. Does Russell T. Davis write good Doctor Who? Does Russell T. Davis write good television at the expense of it being good Doctor Who? Or does Russell T. Davis write both good Doctor Who and good television? I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and I'm going to go to Ben first. Ah, gosh, does he? Um, Yes, so, you know, across the board... Doctor Who uh, and everything else he's done, I think he does. He does do great 
television. Uh, it's it's. Oh funny. no! What I mean is, what I mean by that question is, is Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who good television, but not so much good Doctor Who, or is it both? Um, it's one of it's it is it's one of these questions that I I don't, and this is maybe the complete opposite of what you were looking for. Uh, for to close the podcast, is that yeah, it is good television and it's good Doctor Who. I don't necessarily know how to explain that. I just know it in my bones. Uh, it's both of those things. Um, it's, uh, you know, as a, a tremendous fan of Doctor Who, I love it. Like I love, you know, Tom Baker or Patrick Troughton. Um, and as television, it's uh, watching it. It was regularly everything I could hope for. Uh, and uh, as, as a piece of entertainment regularly brought me together with uh, with a lot of people um to you know to 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 create some sort of like tremendous appreciation you know like a society that um you know that uh, felt better as a result of having watched these programs if you Sorry, I'm, it's, it's incredibly going off on a weird emotional ta- tangent there. It's okay. Um, I was only expecting yes or no, so, you know. Oh, okay, fair. okay. Well, then <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Yes, very, if you're looking for a kind of um, Mark Kermode-esque, um, you know, articulate, uh, you know, deconstruction of why I think that, um, I don't know. But to both questions, I would say resoundingly, uh, in my gut, I feel absolutely yes. And Matt, I know what you're going to say, but say yeah. it anyway. Well, I'm going to say, yes, resoundingly, it is both good television and good Doctor Who. But I would also say, I, I, I find, and again, going back to what Ben was saying about the fan conditioning earlier, I find it very interesting that uh, one one would make a distinction between the two. I think, you know, good Doctor Who has always been good television and, and vice versa, I think. Um, you know, I said, I said last week when I was on, on the show that, you know, I think Doctor Who's commercial highs have always coincided with its with its creative highs i think um it's it's a a mass market mass entertainment uh mainstream tv show um and i think you know i think the russell t davis era is good television good doctor who i think the same about the pertwee era the the colin baker era i don't think is good doctor who and i don't think it's good television either i think i think the two are one and the same i think it's a false distinction to make i I like that answer it's a good answer (laughs) Um, well, that's Russell T. Davis, and I think quite resoundingly you've found on the positive side of Russell T. Davis, and I don't think that was really ever going to be in any doubt, in spite of what questions I asked <laughs> and what points I put. Well, well uh, you know, putting it, putting it back to you, what do you, what do you think? Uh, do you think it's good Doctor Who, good television? How do you how do you feel about? Well, I I've got to say, throughout the entire conversation, I've pretty much agreed with what you've both said, and the criticisms that I've had, and all of the things I've brought up have been things that I've genuinely thought. But you know, I said at the very start, but does it matter? Was one of my questions. I think all of these are genuine criticisms, but by the same token, because. Russell T. Davis is writing good Doctor Who as good television. I don't think any of those criticisms matter because I, because in spite of the fact that I phrase them as criticisms, in actual fact, I think they're just a byproduct of it being good television. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, everything we've talked about is, uh, you know, or everything that at the start of this I said irked me. 
if I'm honest, they're just all utterly forgivable. So, so I don't know why I continue to say they arc me because, you know, I've, I've very quickly made peace with uh, with anything. That I, I but disagree. that's the thing is that you know something can still irritate you to a degree, and yet, well, I've I've often said this: if you love somebody or something, you tend to. Well, the expression is: if you love somebody, you love them in spite of their flaws. But no, I'd modify that and say: if you love somebody, you love them because of their flaws. And it's the same with Doctor Who. I don't think. I think if you went an entire series of Doctor Who without being irked by a single thing, I think you'd probably find it a little bit bland. Oh, completely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also not to say that. I mean, you know, it's. it's it seems to have been a, a, a resounding thumbs up for Russell T Davis on the show. That's not to say that everything he wrote worked or that, uh, you know, all of his episodes are, you know, I, th- I think there are a few, I mean, New Earth is one that I've never particularly got on board with, <laughs> well, for example. Yeah. You know, I don't think that's terribly good. Uh, I think he, uh, I think he's gone up a few uh, blind alleys in the past. Like, I think the Martha arc is, uh, was, was a terribly misguided idea. Um, but I think also, which also I think is very interesting, I, I don't I don't quite know what the current tally is as to who's written more episodes of Doctor Who, whether it's uh, Davis or, or Moffat. But um, presumably it's the case that like, at the point where Davis handed over the reins, he had written more Doctor Who than any previous writer who had ever contributed it. I mean, that's probably true, isn't it? I, I think so, yeah. Yes, I think it would make sense. And I think also, you know, it's, it's, it's the first time we would ever have had cause to really consider... Doctor Who sort of as the as the work of a writer, you know, it being a writerly series as opposed to, you know, jobbing writers coming in and sort of advancing it week on week, really. Um, and so I think a lot of that speaks to, you know, the, the, the successes or, and, and failures, it's, it's always going to be a bit of a mixed bag. But, you know, I think it's, it's still an incredible achievement, sort of the volume of work that he pulled off in such a short space of time and, and how good so much of it is. Well, what I'm going to do now... <clears throat> is I'm going to save the Stephen Moffat episode where we have a similar conversation about Stephen Moffat for two or three months. But in the meantime, although December's full up, January and February, you know, I I don't plan that far ahead. December's only full up because it's got the Christmas special on the horizon and I've got things that I want to do with the podcast in the meantime. But after that, I would quite like to have similar conversations to the one we've had now about not all of but certainly quite a few of the people who were responsible for making Doctor Who back in the classic series as well people like Innes Lloyd and Jerry Davis people like Barry Letts and Terence Dix people like Graham Williams and even I don't know Douglas Adams and of course people like Eric Saywood and John Nathan Turner well put me down for the Saywood one (laughs) I think I'm gonna have to put everybody down (laughs) for the Saywood one get form an orderly queue but I think the point is when you bring it up this way, I think, well, I think you get a new appreciation for it, perhaps slightly, by teasing out the points that we're making from the angle we're coming at them from. So I think it would be an interesting experiment to kind of more or less go over all of Doctor Who. And I want to do it with the same sort of team. So, you know, you two chaps and Jim and Mark, variations on that team. We'll convene once every couple of weeks, maybe in the new year for two or three months until the series comes back and go through a few more people. Are you both up for that? Absolutely. Yes, it sounds brilliant. Oh, well, fantastic. Well, in that case, watch this space because there'll be 
about another half a dozen, if not another dozen episodes like this coming up. In which case, I can only say, anybody listening, I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, But in the meantime, next week, uh, well, I'm not going to say what it is, but next week I have what I hope is going to be a bit of a treat for people, since it's nearly Christmas and it's sort of around the 23rd of November. Maybe people won't think it's a treat, but, well, that was the plan. But until then, I was JR. Uh, I was Ben. And I was Matt. And we will speak again soon. depending on who's doing them. Random. Let's just say we are here with Matthew Dale. Dale. We Matthew Good for some reason. I don't know. Uh, Matthew Dale, who didn't play Alan Dale, played Little John. Yes. Yeah. That's confusing. Um, in Robot Sherwood with Peter Capaldi. Yes. And you're looking very... I mean, this isn't really working on all your podcasts, but you are looking the part. Yes, yeah. I have to say, it's the first for me I've not seen a guest turn up in their costume. It's... I am actually the first and only guest that actually does a convention in costumes. Oh, I've everybody, yeah, so I'm, I'm hopefully going to start a new trend. Right. Were you a fan before you got the role? Yeah, I was a fan um, ever since well, my doctor was was um, Sylvester McCoy. Um, and um, because, um, because I grew up with him as a doctor, I've been loving it ever since. So when I was given a chance to be in Doctor Who, oh yes, the excitement was so amazing. So was it watching Doctor Who that made you want to be an actor? Um, kind of, yes, in a way. Um, well, I did my um, first production of a community play in Dorchester where Sylvester McCoy came to see the production. And um, I would like enough room to come and see me, and I, was, I actually met him, and I was really pleased. But the thing is, I had that moment where I completely blanked, and I had no idea who he was. <laughs> and I was gutted when I found out after I'd met him who he was when he'd left. But um, ever since then, I've, uh, I have said he's seen him since, um, and he remembers me from a little kid in the play. So, yeah, so... He, re- he remembers me quite well, so I'm pleased about that. So, but yeah, so because of him, I've uh, I've learnt um, a lot of things, and uh, yeah, he's um, been a kind of inspiration in a way. Right, fantastic. So, how did you then get into acting? What was the process? Um, well, I started um, at a very young. I um, did a stagecoach school course in, um, in Dorchester. Um, that was for four years, which got me my first job in teachers with Andrew Lincoln. Right. Um, and um, 
few years later, and then I've got um, Stella, and then, well, not too far along ago, I was in Casualty, but then also I've got myself Doctor Who, which um, was a big one um, for me, and I was really pleased. Um, and I've been with other agencies, and they've been giving me work, small bits, but I, I am in two films coming out very soon. Oh, yeah. Um, I can't say one until next year. Uh, well, I can't. Well, I can't say one at the moment. <laughs> but the one I'm looking forward to is in 13 days' time, Bridget Jones' Diary of the Baby. I'm in that film. Oh. They're playing the trailer on the loose downstairs. Yeah, so I'm on a feature part in that. So, uh, so I'm in that, so that's my next event. Not the baby, No, no, no. Do you find that your height is significant? Because clearly being Little John requires a very tall end. Yeah. Is that a key to the parts that you get? Or are some of them just it's irrelevant? Yeah, um, the height does help. Because um, with a beard and with a long hair, it kind of helps that you stand out and they're like, ooh, this person stand out, they look odd. We'll have them. So it's, that's, that's the way it works. And um, because of that, I get um, work left, right, and centre. So growing a beard and um, long hair works. Well, I've got the beard, uh, maybe the hair. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you're kind of doing the work for the casting people, really. Yeah, basically, yeah. Making yourself marketable. Brilliant. Yes. I mean, on the set, is it, is it like I'm told there's a lot of standing around, waiting? And sitting around and waiting, yes. yes. <laughs> but it's worth it. Really. The days, um, about 12 hour days each day on, on set, and it only takes about a week to do um, one episode. But every minute is, sometimes you get energy from absolutely nowhere. You, you feel you've done about 10 hours and you're like, or about five hours and you're actually knackered out. But you somehow, instantly, they want you back on set. You have the energy from nowhere. And if you're feeling weak and no energy, it just comes out of blue. And it's, it's really helpful. And uh, I think the um, adrenaline kicks in. And you're thinking, you're on this. You're with this person, that person. It's like, wow. How would you describe atmosphere on set, then, when you were working on Robot Sherwood? <laughs> Very entertaining. Uh, a, good le- a good lot of sense of humour. Um, and a good buzz around the episode. And, uh, yeah, it was really good. Everyone's um, been nice and uh, yeah, talk to him. And what's Peter Parker like? He is. He's quite funny. He's um, non-swearing. Uh, so he's uh, he, obviously on the other shows he's done. He's been swearing like crazy, but he doesn't swear on set at all. He's a really nice, nice gentleman. Um, he just talks normally in conversation. He says good morning in the morning. So he's really good now. One thing I really enjoyed is that each morning on set, they'd um, get everybody on the main cast together to do a, a, a read-through. So you're there, sitting, standing next to um, Peter Capaldi, Ben Stiller over there, Jenna Coleman over there, and the whole cast, and you're just talking to them, and they just, yeah, they go through their lines, and it's just a great atmosphere, and it's just, yeah, like a kid in a candy store, you're just so excited. Mm-hmm. Do, you, um, do you have a take on the, the business of where they edited the episode? No, I don't. You don't? Are you stay? You abstain on that one? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was known where they had an episode with Edison. In what, sorry, in what was... You know what was cut out. We know what was cut out, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I'm confused. Well, there was, there was, there was a... Yeah, exactly, yeah. No, um, I think it was a bad thing. They should not have cut it out. They should have um, kept the scene 
because it makes sense. It, 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 it seemed very weird. Really to cut out. Yeah, 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 because um, it doesn't really tell a story. Because a lot of fans are confused that <laughs> half of them think we're robots, which we're not, and then half thinks we were. But with that episode, if that um, that cutting bit of, of of the sheriff getting his head cut off, if that had been in the story, then everything would have made sense. So, mm, mm. but um, I think people got a gist at the, at the end of the day. But I it think it, I think it was. I understand why it was taken out at the time, but yeah, I don't quite understand why it wasn't reinstated for the DVD. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I should have had like hidden bonuses, but the only way you can find it is online now. So yeah, it's the same thing happened to the TV movie, didn't it? Yeah, but that hasn't reinstated it, has it? The, uh, I, I'm never sure which version of the TV movie I've seen as to whether the, it's the, the special edition. The mm. special edition DVD has that got the extra footage? I, I think know. it has. Oh, possibly. Is it? Yeah, I it's d- only I the know. Blu-ray. Okay, Blu-ray is the USA. Oh, right. Well, the Blu-ray is not. But eight proper HD, is it? Well, they do. They do have behind the scenes um, on the um, the Doctor Who extra on the DVD, which um, I'm actually featuring quite a lot on there. So, uh, so yes, yeah. So the extras one are worth seeing. You do see some behind the scenes, but they did cut a few scenes which were which I was in actually, which I was kind of annoyed about. But most of them, it was there all most of the time there. So, uh, but it was good fun. I suppose what's nice about the level you've gone in on, on Doctor Who, I've got a friend, uh, Julian Seeger. Oh, he yeah, I know him very well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, he's been in two or three episodes now, so he was he's able to sort of fit in, slot into other episodes. Are you hoping to do that? Um, hopefully, yeah. I'll um, jump at the opportunity to, um, to be again. Basically, I put it that me and Julian, when we're together, I think we'll make the, great, the greatest hairy bikers team ever. <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about monster work because there are, there are several people that have kind of been in the show several times encased in rubber and you wouldn't know it was the same person yeah so you got the height to help yeah um, I want to do I want to be in that Any, anything yeah, anything they um, come um, at me with um, basically yeah I'm happy to do um, jump at any ops even the spin-offs um, I'd be um, pleased to do it again so but yeah any bad guys I'd take the opportunity Watch the space. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I think we are. Yes. Yes. We can wrap it up, can we? We can just join us. We could, yeah. Let's do that. Chris. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. How have you how have you found Hooverville today then? Really fantastic fun and I'm I'm hoping to come back next year to do it again. It's great. Yeah. I've been every year. Yeah. 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 So yeah. It's been. Have you heard it? It started in a train shed. No. The first two years, there's a museum not far from here called the Midland Railway Museum or something. Okay. Yeah. You you park there and you get on a steam train and it takes you to the venue. So that's kind of cool. Nice. But the venue itself was in this huge train shed with the acoustics of which and the heating of which were not so great. And so they moved it here. So then we got we got fantastic air conditioning here but every other room in the building is boiling so we are very lucky
Have you found that you've got a lot of fan mail? I don't get much fan. I've had the odd. Um, I've had the odd bit of um, fan mail here and there, but I get more fans at the conventions there than more and um, more events now. Put them online all the time. So, uh, but, but I'll put it. Um, I've got two of my. Um, uh, well, actually, no, no, three of my. Um, uh, top friends I've got online at the moment is Pamela Anderson, Brad, um, Sam Jones, who played aka Flash Gordon, and um, a girl called uh, was it, Gail uh, Cal, uh, the one who played Wonder Woman in the um, Batman and um, oh, right. yeah, the, yeah. Gail, yeah, yeah, Gail Gattel. Gattel. Yeah, basically, so I get to mingle with big names. <laughs> no, I can't. I, I, I want to do another. I want to do a convention with them, but it's just I seem to. I've not done a convention with any of the members of the episode. Yet. Have you not? No. Yeah, and obviously do them, um, get everyone in one, but they haven't done it yet. So, but I'm hoping they'll do something. Mm. Maybe Tenth Planet will take it, I don't know. Sort of ski hatchers in the range of next year. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I was going to say, one of the nicest things about catching up with Julian, because he lives locally to where I'm from, um, is that I, I sort of see him maybe a year apart each time, and every time he's moved more and more into the yeah. film, so it'd be nice to catch up with you at, at yeah, some stage. Yeah, because um, I'm um, Dorset-based and he's Devon-based. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've got an eight-hour journey on Sunday. <laughs> Hopes to do, but it's all fun. It's all good. Yeah. So I, I'm happy to travel wherever to conventions. Um, I just sit down, look pretty, and just like have fun. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. What should we do? Don't think so. Yeah. Think so. Is there anything you want to mention? Um. Darling, anyway, um, come buy photos. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do you have a Twitter handle? Or? Um, yeah, I'm on Facebook um, under Matthew Dale um, or Matthew Dale Nine on Twitter. Okay. okay. Lovely. So search me, find me, and I've got an Axe page, Matthew Dale Act on Facebook as well. So lovely. Fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks for your time. That's right. So now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> take care. Cheers. <laughs>